I was just thinking that uh, that song, All Hail King Jesus, is uh, the perfect lead-in for today's text. So thankful that we sang that song, Phil. I don't know who picked that, but I was like, I don't know, when you did that little transition from how great is our God into all hail King Jesus again at the end, I just, I'm thankful that you led it that way. It's the perfect lead-in for our passage today. Um, if you guys have your Bible, you can open it up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Alan read our text earlier, but uh, what a passage here about the kingship of Jesus. What a passage here that we have about the inevitable response that every human being one day will bow the knee to King Jesus. And we will hail him as Lord. We're going to see that today in our text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God's church around the world experiences suffering and affliction. God's church around the world experiences suffering and affliction. On April 5th, a Christian pastor in eastern Uganda was poisoned to death because he refused to sell the land that he was using for his gospel preaching church. April 17th of this year, a video was released showing three Egyptian Christian men being shot in the head as a warning to the rest of the Christians in Egypt. May 11th, four Christian men in the Indonesian village of Kalamago were beheaded simply because they were Christians. May 21st, Nigerian herdsmen shot and killed a man named Leviticus Mopka and his three-year-old son because he led a Christian school and pastored a church in their village. Guys, God's church all around the world experiences suffering and affliction. The instances that I just shared, they're just a few, there's a handful of the recent examples, but Christians have been suffering um, in unimaginable ways from the beginning of the time of Jesus until now. Nero burned the city of Rome and blamed it on Christians. He dipped Christians in tar and oil and lit them on fire to light up the streets in his city. Domitian placed Christians in arenas, had them torn apart by animals from the Roman Empire to the Ottoman Empire from the Russian Bolsheviks to the North Korean concentration camps of our day, Christians have been suffering affliction for their faith ever since the time of Christ until now. Gordon-Conwell University estimates that approximately 70 million Christians have been martyred in the past 2,000 years. They estimate that more than half of those happened in the 20th century alone. Since the year 2000, they estimate that another 2 million martyrs have occurred in the past 20 years. It's impossible to know exactly how many have died. It's impossible to know how many Christians have suffered in other ways that we can't necessarily count. Some have suffered in the sense of having been personally imprisoned or beaten and put in chains because of their faith. Others have had their property pillaged and stolen by those who are hostile to them. Some have been uh, disdained and rejected, shunned from their families for the name of Christ. Some have been falsely accused by authorities and officials who could impose 
punishments on them that they didn't deserve. Some have been unjustly removed from their jobs or not hired for positions simply because they were Christians. Guys, it's impossible to know exactly how many have suffered in some way, shape, or form for their Christian faith. And it's impossible to know how many more will suffer as time goes on. And it's even more impossible to know how long this suffering is going to actually continue. So when we see all this suffering throughout history for all of God's people, the question is this, what's God going to do about it? Is he going to do anything about it? Does he care? Is he paying attention? Does he notice? Or will his people have suffered in vain all of this time? That's the question. And our text for today answers that question. This is week two of our sermon series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And I want to just stop for a moment and say uh, thank you to Connor. I don't know if Connor's here today, but thankful for uh, Connor stepping up and preaching last, uh, last Sunday so that I could spend a weekend with my family. I know that especially during the nine o'clock service, I heard we had some te- technical difficulties and Connor uh, appropriately filled the gap with a reference to Johnny jokes. I appreciated that. Um, you know, last week, Connor, he covered verses one through four of our text, and he uh, really pointed out that our scripture from last week showed five marks of a commendable church, marks that we um, should be pursuing to live out as a church. They're n- these are not the only five marks of a commendable church. They're just five that were present in the church in Thessalonica, five that we want to live out in our day and age today. But the last of the five that Connor brought out from verse four is that a commendable church is one that stays steadfast under persecution and trials. The Thessalonian church was living this out. They were staying steadfast under persecution and trials. This wasn't easy. It wasn't simple. It wasn't enjoyable. Undoubtedly, they wanted rescue. They wanted relief. They wanted deliverance. They probably had moments where they wondered, like, is all this opposition and our perseverance through all the suffering, is it going to be worth it all? If we were walking through in their shoes, wouldn't we be thinking to ourselves, hey, is God going to act on our behalf? Is all this suffering going to prove to be worthwhile? Lord, when are we going to be vindicated? When are we going to be proven right? Because our enemies are surrounding us and they're bringing hostility against us. That's what we would be asking. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonian church to assure them of this one truth. This is the main point from our sermon text today. Here it is. For the church that suffers affliction, God promises vindication. For the church that suffers affliction, God promises vindication. That's our big idea from the the sermon today. That's the main point of verses 5 through 12. As we walk through our eight verses together, I want to walk through these eight verses and I want to answer three questions um, about God's vindication of his church. The first question that we're going to answer is, how is God going to vindicate his church? The second question is, when will God vindicate his church? And the third one is, why? Why will God vindicate his church? Those are the three things that Paul brings out in our text today. I want to make sure that we answer those three questions. And as we go through them and answer them, at the end, I want to draw about five, four or five specific takeaways for us, application points for us that we need to glean from this text. And here's my prayer. Like I was 
up late last night praying about this, praying right before this service started today. Here's my prayer as we walk through this text, twofold prayer. My prayer is that the believers who are listening to this sermon today will be greatly comforted by this text. But my prayer is that the unbelievers who are listening to this sermon will be made incredibly uncomfortable to the point that they seek Jesus to the point that they turn to Christ to find relief and comfort that they need through the gospel. So let's jump into our text and let's answer these three questions. Number one, how will God vindicate his suffering church? How will God vindicate his suffering church? We start to see the answer here in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. Verse 5 says this, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. All right, here, so in this verse, we kind of see the first way that God's gonna vindicate his church. And it's kind of a confusing verse, so let me just explain it a little bit. Paul is saying that God one day is gonna make a judgment. And that judgment is gonna be a righteous judgment. It means it's gonna be a right and just judgment. It's gonna be one that's not wrong. And the right judgment that God's gonna make is about who actually belongs in his kingdom. And Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica, hey, take heart, Christians, because God's gonna say you belong in. You're in the kingdom. You're worthy to be there. God's not gonna get that judgment wrong because there's evidence to back up God's righteous judgment about you. And what is that evidence that, that God's declaration of their worthiness to be in his kingdom is right. What's the evidence that backs that up? This is the evidence. It's the fact that they faithfully endured persecution and suffering and affliction for the sake of the gospel. God will vindicate the church that endures suffering. How? First of all, by welcoming them into his kingdom. You belong here. You're at home, God's gonna say. He's gonna make it all worthwhile. But verse six shows us another way that God is gonna vindicate the afflicted church. It says in verse six, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Paul says that God considers it just. That word justice, so it it stood out to me today as I was preparing because uh, I think you'd agree with me, there's a great cry for justice in our world today, isn't there? Huge cry for justice. All we had to do is pay attention to our culture over this past year, and we saw men, all sides of the spectrum, crying out for justice. Regardless of which side of the political spectrum you're on, we heard people crying for it. Some people wanted Chauvin held accountable for George Floyd's death. Other people wanted rioters held accountable for all the destruction that they made in our cities. Some people wanted President Trump removed from office. Others wanted the courts to declare a rigged election. When some people, you know, wanted uh, those uh, certain, like some people wanted justice in the sense of, of the, they, they want those who don't wear masks to be penalized. Other people wanted justice in the sense of their, their, the people who mandated the masks to be penalized. Regardless of how you feel about that, doesn't really matter to me today. Here's what does matter to me. Deep within the cry of of the heart of every human being, there is a sense of right and wrong. And when we get the sense that something is wrong, what does our heart long for? Justice. It's in the heart of every human being. There's a longing in all of our hearts for true justice. Well, 
what does true justice require? True justice requires a perfect judge. It requires a perfect judge. Human courts will never be perfect courts. Human judges will never be perfect judges. They're never gonna get everything right. They're sometimes gonna get things wrong. But we can't avoid the fact that the Bible presents our God as a good and righteous judge. All of his judgments are right. His judgments will be perfect. And he will perfectly and justly repay those who have caused affliction to his church. That's what this text is really all about, that God will perfectly and righteously repay those who afflict and cause suffering to his church. Look how verse eight and nine describes the just repayment that God will bring to those who afflict his church. Verse eight, in flaming fire, invicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Guys, I want you to just let those words sink into you for a moment. This is God's word. Words that he had the Holy Spirit inspire to put in scripture so that we would pay attention to them. The words here to describe God's judgment, it's fire. It's a reference to the holiness of God. Vengeance. This isn't just about God getting even, okay? This is about God enacting what is right and just. There are words here about eternal destruction. When we think about the eternal destruction of those who do not obey the gospel, there's no getting around this. This is eternal, conscious suffering and torment that will come upon those who do not trust Jesus as Lord. This passage is plainly saying, very clearly saying, that it is just and it is right for God to punish those who do not obey the gospel. It doesn't just happen. God doesn't just do judgment. It's right for him to do it. It's just for him to do it. In fact, if if God didn't punish them, then it would be wrong because it would be unjust. God's justice is preserved. His perfect justice is preserved by sending some people into eternal destruction forever. This isn't comfortable. I get it. It's not comfortable. But it's here in God's holy word. And we can struggle with this sometimes because whenever we talk about judgment, people say things, maybe we think things, we hear challenges from the unbelieving world who will say things like this. Oh, you know, you Christians, you always talk about how God is love. But love's not compatible with this. Love's not compatible with with judgment and punishment. People will say things like, you Christians, you know, you... Your God commands you to forgive others. Why can't he just practice what he preaches himself? Just forgive everybody. The thing is that none of us actually want a judge that just lets everybody off the hook as if no wrongdoing ever happened. Nobody wants that. 
None of us would tolerate a judge who just let rapists and murderers and child abusers and molesters, yeah, just let's let them go free. No, nobody would do that. We all expect good judges to make just judgments. If there's a crime, we expect due penalty. And guys, God is the perfect judge. God cannot be unjust. He must practice perfect justice. Therefore, he must punish sin. So when sin is committed against his church and people oppose and oppress and afflict and come against the church, God is just for demanding punishment for them. And this passage is teaching us today that one day God will do just that. He will vindicate the suffering of his church first by declaring that they are worthy of his kingdom but second, by bringing judgment against those who are against his church. That's the answer to the first question. How will God vindicate his church? That's how he's gonna do it. Here's the second question. When is that gonna happen? When is that gonna happen? Verse six said that God is just to afflict those who afflict the church, and then in verse seven he says, and and he's just to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, and here's when it happens, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We need to understand the Bible teaches very clearly that our Lord Jesus is gonna come again. And when he comes, it's gonna be, Quite different from his first coming, right? The scripture teaches that, that, he, that he came, that he suffered, that he died, that he was buried, and that he resurrected, and that he ascended to heaven. And the scripture is gonna say, it, it says that he is gonna come again, and when he comes, he's gonna come from heaven with his mighty angels joining him. Guys, that's quite a bit different than when he came the first time, right? His, his second coming is gonna be quite a bit different from his first coming. Let me tell you about this. His first coming was in weakness. His second coming is going to be in power. His first coming was in a manger. His second coming is going to be in the clouds. His first coming was to serve. His second coming is going to be to rule. His first coming was to hang on a tree. His second coming will be to reign on a throne. His first coming was to take judgment. His second coming was to bring judgment. His first coming was about his mercy. His second coming will be about his justice. His first coming was about his suffering. His second coming will be about his conquering. His first was about his grace. His second is gonna be about his glory. His first, he came as a humble servant. His second, he'll come as a victorious king. His first was to save his church. His second will be to vindicate his church. He's coming again. He's coming again. Some of you might wonder, like, How do we know he's coming again? You know what proved the word of God to be true? You know why these believers in Thessalonica believed the word of God to be true? As we studied last week and in our text today, it's because God promised to raise Jesus from the dead and then he actually did it. The resurrected Christ, the resurrection proves that God's gonna keep his promise. And just as God kept his promise to raise Jesus from the dead. He's gonna keep his promise to send Jesus again. And his second coming is gonna be quite different from his first, but rest assured, he will come. He's not gonna turn a blind eye to all the suffering that's going on in his church on this earth. And I'm not just talking about America, right? I'm not just talking about the introductory 
opposition we're experiencing here in our country. Let's, let's, let's kind of set our own little American worldview aside for a second. What about the suffering in the rest of the world? God sees it. He hears it. He notices all the affliction that's going on with his church. His people are not gonna be orphaned. They're not gonna be abandoned. They're not gonna be left alone to fend for themselves because Christ the King is gonna come. And he's gonna take up the cause of his people and he's gonna make things right. When will he vindicate his suffering church? It's at the return of Christ. And here's the third question for you today. Why? Why will God vindicate his suffering church? What's the purpose? What's the, why? What does he want to do? Like, what's he trying to account? Why not just let all these little peon human people just kind of be, you know, snuffed out of existence and like no big deal? Why is he going to vindicate his church? Verse 10 tells us, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Guys, Jesus is going to come. And on the day of his coming, he's going to be glorified in his saints. He will be glorified among those who have believed. The Thessalonian believers, the believers throughout the past 2,000 years, you and I today, those of us who truly believe, those who are going to believe in the future, God is going to be glorified among his saints. His people are going to see what goes on in his return. They're going to see what it's like when he comes with his mighty angels. They're going to see what it's like when he comes with fire and brings judgment and vengeance against those who have opposed his church. And what does the scripture say? We as believers, we're going to marvel. We're going to be amazed. Our jaws are going to drop and we're going to say, wow, all hail King Jesus. Paul goes on to emphasize this even more in verse 11 and 12. Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. This is the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church in Thessalonica. He wanted God to make them a church that resolved in their hearts to do good works and then actually did them, right? Like, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He wanted God to do it in the church. He prayed for them. And part of the work that he prayed that God would build in them to do was the work of persevering through the suffering. That's what it meant. That's part of what it meant for them to be worthy of the calling that God had given them. Notice how Paul prays for them in this verse. Paul prayed that, that God would make them worthy of his calling, that God would fulfill every resolve for good and works of their faith, and that God would do it by his power. Paul knows that only God can make a Christian worthy, only God can produce good works in a Christian, only God can make a Christian do the work of persevering through opposition. So Paul prayed, God, do it. Do it for the Thessalonian church. Why? Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. All this perseverance that they were living out, all this faithfulness that Paul was praying would be on display in their life, all these things that they had resolved to will and to, to work out according to their faith in God, all the good works that Paul was praying God would do in them. Why? Why was he praying for that? It served so that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified in the church and that the church would share in the glory of Christ. Why? Why does God vindicate his church? Why does he take righteous judgment against those who oppose the church? You know why? 
He does it for the sake and the glory of his son. All hail King Jesus. What are some takeaways for us? A handful of things for us today as we want to make some specific application. Church family, first of all, we must be a church that is truly zealous for the glory of Christ. We must be a church that is truly zealous for the glory of Christ. It's part of my prayer for our church that we would love Jesus above all, that we would want his name known. Pray for our elders that are gonna start shepherding our church, that we would be elders that lead us to be a church for the glory of Christ. Pray that every believer who names Jesus' name in this church would live for the glory of Christ. Guys, there should be nothing in us. There should be nothing in us that says, man, I hope people look at me and say, wow, what a good Christian. There should be everything in us that says, I hope people can see my life that there's a very good Christ. There should be nothing in us that wants the name of UBC advanced in the Beaver Creek and Dayton area where there should be everything in us that wants the name of King Jesus advanced around the world. Let's be a church zealous for the glory of Christ. Number two, guys, we must pray for the grace not to quit when suffering comes our way. Paul prayed that they wouldn't quit, that they would be zealous for those good works. Paul prayed that, you know, that there would be an endeavor in them to continue in the good works. But Paul, Paul prayed for them because only God can do it. And so for you and I, we must pray that God produces that persevering grace in us. You have to remember in this text, Paul, Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians to Christians, right? He's, writing, he's not writing it to non-Christians. All this talk about judgment and vengeance and fury, he's writing it to a church that was a commendable church. They were on track. But he's writing it to them because they were suffering and some of them had even died waiting for Christ to come back. And, you know, what are you thinking when you start to suffer for Jesus' sake and some people even die for his sake and Christ hasn't returned? No doubt Paul knew some of them were thinking like, man, maybe I should just give up on this Christian faith. Maybe I should just walk away. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I should just bend a little bit and compromise and start to slowly fade away from my faith because maybe then I could have some relief. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church? He's saying, no, don't give in. Don't give up. Don't quit because look what's coming for the unbeliever. Judgment, vengeance, fire, Eternal separation from God. Do not quit and prove yourself to be an unbeliever because judgment is coming for unbelievers. Church family, what's it gonna be when hardship comes your way? If you're a Christian today, what's it gonna be when hardship comes your way? Those of you in this room who are younger, what are you gonna do when you choose to follow Jesus and your parents look at you and say, that's not the way you were raised? Those of you who are older and you have children who don't believe in God, what are you gonna do when your kids say to you, mom and dad, you're nuts. Why are you still holding on to this old book? Jesus hasn't come back. Why do you believe that? What are you gonna do when suffering comes your way? The physical ailments, the doctor's reports, the diagnoses and the prognoses come your way and you know what? You go through suffering in this life. What are you gonna do when a pastor or a church leader, or some mother, brother, or sister in Christ that you thought you could trust, they do something unthinkable. You can't believe. What are you gonna do when 
your job becomes at risk because you won't bend on your Christian values. What are you going to do when the hardship comes? Because mark my word, mark Jesus' words, tribulations will come. Hardship will come. And they're not just going to come as general suffering in the world. That will happen. But they're going to come specifically because you choose to follow Jesus and stand for the things of the Christian faith. When that happens, you guys, you're either going to draw closer to the Lord and closer to his church, or you're going to move away from the Lord and become distant from his church. Remember, perseverance through suffering is part of the evidence that makes God declare you worthy to be part of his kingdom. In other words, those who don't endure suffering, those who quit, those who give up, they're not worthy. They don't belong in the kingdom. God's gonna declare, this isn't for you. So pray for the grace to not quit when the suffering comes. True saints will persevere. Number three, we must affirm the difficult doctrine of hell and eternal destruction. This is an important takeaway for us in our time right now that we as believers must affirm the difficult doctrine of hell and eternal destruction. I know that many people struggle with the concept of hell. I think one thing that helps us is to realize Matthew 25 verse 41 says that God has prepared hell in the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. That's God's main intent for that. But those who choose to oppose Christ and reject the gospel and take a different way than the one way that God has made to avoid hell and eternal destruction, those who reject Jesus, they will end up in hell. The problem is that over the past decade or so, at least in my lifetime, it's become increasingly popular to move away from biblical faithfulness when it comes to the doctrine of hell. In 2011, a famous evangelical megachurch pastor named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And in that book, he starts to espouse this view that God's gonna end up you know, uh, restoring the world and saving everyone and everyone's gonna end up with God and nobody will experience eternal suffering away from God. In 2011, Time Magazine actually published an, uh, a cover story about this and their cover story was, was, uh, had the headline, What If There Is No Hell? And ever since that time, there's been this trend in evangelical Christianity to reject major portions of the Bible that have to do with hell and eternal suffering while at the same time trying to hold on to Jesus. So many will say things like, you know, I'm just kind of deconstructing my faith. I'm becoming an ex-evangelical, right? That's kind of the tagline now. So, you know, I haven't given up totally, but maybe I've embraced universalism, that all paths eventually lead to God. Maybe you don't embrace the universalism, but maybe you embrace annihilationism where, yeah, God might send some people to hell, but it's not gonna be eternal conscious torment. You know, uh, we're eventually gonna annihilate. We're gonna cease to exist. Um, I mean, I get it. That kind of sounds a little more palatable, doesn't it? Like, oh, you know, maybe we can just embrace Jesus and annihilationism and Jesus and universalism. Maybe... We can just embrace those, right? No, we cannot. Paul told Timothy almost 2,000 years ago that people would want to embrace more palatable doctrines. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead 
by his appearing and his kingdom, here's the charge, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, be ready to preach faithfully when it's popular to do so and when it's not popular to do so. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So let's, believers, we embrace this verse. Let's not get smug in our teaching. Let's not get arrogant. Let's not get condescending to people. We, we teach the God's word faithfully to people with patience. Why do we do all this? Verse three, 2 Timothy 4, verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. Guys, deconstructing your faith, ex-evangelicalism, annihilationism, universalism, these are myths. And people are wandering away into myths. There is such a thing in the Bible, repeatedly mentioned, about everlasting destruction and eternal removal from the presence of the Lord. You don't have to like it, but you can't act like it's not there. If we are to faithfully uphold the scriptures, we must faithfully uphold both its pleasant doctrines and its difficult doctrines, even those about hell and eternal destruction. Which means this. Here's the fourth takeaway for us. We must obey the gospel of Jesus before we die or before he returns. We must obey the gospel of Jesus before we die or before he returns. Guys, the gospel of Jesus, this is good news. It's the good news that that must be declared and preached and announced and people need to hear it. It's the good news that Jesus came and he suffered and he died in the place of sinners. He hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, taking the wrath of of God upon himself on Calvary's cross so that you and I don't have to bear the wrath of God in hell forever. He's come to rescue those who believe. He's come so that sin and Satan can be defeated. He's come so that God's kingdom can be established and remove all the darkness that exists in the world today. That's the good news of the gospel. That good news must be heard and then believed and trusted, but it's also a gospel that must be obeyed. Isn't that an interesting word? You must be surrendered to. You must come under the gospel. In other words, you must repent of your sin and trust Jesus as King and Lord. There must be a transfer of authority in your life where once you lived saying to yourself, I'm in charge, this is my life, I'm gonna do what I want. You never really thought about God and what he wanted until there's a change. And that change is when you say, oh, Jesus is King. All hail King Jesus. I bow the knee to him. I surrender my life to him. Have you obeyed the gospel today? That's the real question. Have you obeyed the gospel today? Have you had that turning point in your life, that repentance point where you were once living for yourself and then you turned to live for God? Has there been that turning point in your life where you've obeyed the gospel call and you've said, Lord Jesus, I trust that you died for my sin. Thank you. I repent of my sin. I believe in you in faith and I surrender my life to you as king and as Lord. That is obeying the gospel. Have you obeyed the gospel?
Everybody in this room, I'm, I'm appealing to you today with a deeper sense kind of, of uh, urgency in my heart because I'm, I'm just, I don't want to stand before the Lord someday and be like, you know, did you preach faithfully to the church? I don't want to have to say no. I'm, there are so many people in God's church, in the American church, who just go by with comfortable Christianity They've never truly surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. They've never truly honored him as king. They've never bowed their knee, said, Jesus, you are Lord. So I'm not asking you today, do you believe the facts of the gospel? Do you agree that Jesus lived and died and rose again? I'm asking you today, have you you obeyed the gospel? Have you surrendered yourself to the kingship of Jesus? If you haven't, today is both your warning and your call, your warning, what we talked about earlier, there is impending judgment coming for you if you refuse to obey the gospel, if you continue to oppose the Lord Jesus and his church, if you reject the work that Jesus did to save you from your sins, dying on the cross in your place, his justice is coming for you and no one will escape it. That's your warning. But today is also your call. It's your opportunity. It's your moment where you can just surrender as a sinner separated from God saying, God, I give my life to you. I trust in Jesus. When you trust in Christ, that internal conscience, the the heaviness of sin that you just carry around, that guilt and shame, it's gonna be wiped clean. When you surrender to King Jesus, that longing in your heart that says, why do I even exist? What am I on earth for? You're gonna start to realize you live for the glory of God. That's your purpose and and your meaning comes alive inside your heart and now you know why you're here. You know, there's all these things that change in you. When you trust in Jesus, one day you will not receive God's wrath. You will receive his welcome into his kingdom. So you must obey the gospel. And here's the last takeaway for us today. We must look for Christ's return with what I call a sober thankfulness. A sober thankfulness. I call it sober thankfulness because on one hand, it's sobering. We know what's in store for those who do not believe the gospel. There's no warm, fuzzy kumbayas for those who oppose the gospel. God's justice, his just justice, is terrible for the unbeliever. And church, that's why we who believe in Jesus, that's why we, we don't get smug about our Christian faith. We don't get self-righteous. We need to remember Jesus' command. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. This is why believers all around the world who are being beaten and suffering and tortured for their faith right now, this is why we, even when they're put in chains, even when they're killed for their faith, they can still pray for God's mercy on their oppressors all along the difficult road because they have a sober-minded reality of what's in store for those who oppose the gospel. So on one hand, we are sobered as we look to the return of Christ. On the other hand, we rejoice. We know what's to come for those who aren't his people, yet we know what is to come for those who are his people. Jesus is gonna come back. We're gonna be with him. He will be with us. We're gonna be part of his kingdom, accepted by God. No more sin, no more death, no more heartache, no more difficulty, joy, pleasure, hope, glory. 
at the right hand of our God. This is why believers, this is, one of the things that non-Christians struggle with is why do Christians talk so openly about the judgment of God? You know, why, why do Christians, you know, kind of feel so free to talk about the judgment of God? Here's why. Judgment doesn't make a Christian mad or scared. It actually makes us worship because we have come to see that Jesus already went to the cross to bear our judgment. God's wrath isn't coming for us. It's already been poured out on Jesus for those who believe. So when we hear of judgment, we don't get scared. We don't get mad. We get thankful for Jesus. And we get thankful that the affliction that's coming against his church day by day, moment by moment, year after year, we get thankful that that oppression and that affliction, it's not gonna be overlooked. But Jesus is going to come again and he will act on behalf of his church and he will take up the cause of those who have suffered in his name. We know this. What's the big idea of this text? For the church that suffers affliction, God promises vindication. How will he vindicate his suffering church? By declaring them worthy of his kingdom and bringing judgment upon their oppressors. When will he vindicate his suffering church? At the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why will he vindicate his suffering church? So that Christ will be glorified and the church can share in his glory. For the church that suffers affliction, God promises vindication. Believers, take great comfort in that. Unbelievers, I hope you become so uncomfortable with that that you turn to Jesus, obey the gospel, and find the comfort and relief that comes with knowing him. Let's pray. Father, as we close out this service this morning, I uh, thank you that you don't hold back truths in your word, but that you reveal these things to us about what it will be like when you return and the reality of what you will do and how you will judge comfort and the justification that you will provide to your believing people. Lord, we thank you. I pray right, around, right now for your church around the world that is suffering for your name. Make them faithful to persevere. As opposition increases in our country little by little, which I think we're just kind of at the start of it here, Lord, make us faithful. Lord, I pray that you would help us stand firm when the resistance comes in our day and in our age and in our country. I ask, Lord, right now that you would make UBC a church that uh, is... Um, all about you, that, Lord, we would be a church that lives for your glory and for your name. I pray, Father, that we would uphold even the hard parts of what you teach in your word, even when it's in season or not. Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts of every person in this room today. Those who are believers, comfort them with the hope that even when they suffer for your name's sake here, you will ultimately vindicate them in eternity. I pray, Lord, for anybody who's here today right now and their heart is bothered provoked and stirred because they know that they don't know you. I pray, Lord, that they would repent of their sin, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.